Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Well, good morning. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be back on the front range, um, especially living in Jerusalem. You know, God says he will pour out his Holy Spirit and we will receive power when we serve as his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So that's where I am now, at the ends of the earth, and uh, so honored to be with you, especially here in Colorado. My folks live up in Denver. Uh, they, uh, they were here with me last night, so it was fun to be with them. And it's great to be with Ed and his family and the team here and all of you. Uh, I'm really honored. Uh, I've been on a one-month-long book tour for this new political thriller I wrote called The Kremlin Conspiracy. So I'm a little tired, I'll be honest, I'm sort of limping into the finish line after, you know, dozens and dozens of media interviews and traveling all over the country and speaking and But it's been exciting because this is, you know, you write a novel called The Kremlin Conspiracy and uh, Vladimir Putin gives a speech right before it releases, like the most dangerous, belligerent, aggressive speech he's ever given in 18 years in power. You almost want to send him a thank you note, you know. um, Now, he is the most evil dictator on the planet, but he sort of teed up this this book tour uh, quite nicely. Uh, now, some of you are you're not familiar with what I do. I'm a failed political consultant, because that's actually my professional experience. Everyone I ever worked for lost. Everyone. Well, you're laughing because that's not your resume. So, you know, you've, you think it's funny, but it wasn't so funny at the time. Um, uh, yeah, that was pretty, pretty frustrating. But, uh, and then I'm one of the few Jewish people in America. By, by the way, I'm Jewish on my father's side. I'm Gentile on my mother's side but I'm one of the few Jewish people in America that didn't get the financial gene, okay? So I'm not your, you know, your accountant. I'm not your stockbroker. I'm not your hedge fund manager. I just didn't get any of those, any of those skill sets. Nor am I your doctor, your lawyer, your chiropractor. I mean, I just, I'm not running a Hollywood movie studio. I'm not running a, a, a New York bank. That's just all the good skill sets that Jewish people get, I didn't really get any of those. So I, my, my gift is to make things up. I, I, that's, that's what I do. Um, and when I, I had to leave politics, because I was so bad at it, clearly, um, and I went through political detox. I'm out. I'm clean. Admittedly, in 2016, I needed a patch. But, you know, that was a rough year. That was a crazy, crazy year. So I write political thrillers because I pretty much don't know how to do anything else. And I, you know, I'm not kidding about that. That's really true. But I write political thrillers with ass- you know, assassinations and car chases and explosions. And it's designed to grab you by the collar, by the throat, and pull you in on a story. And all kinds of things are moving. It's a high-speed adventure race. Uh, short chapters that are very intense, very explosive, with cliffhanger endings. These chapters, these are like, uh, they're like Pringles. You can't eat just one. You know, it's 2.30 in the morning, and you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to go to work. I've got to go to school. I, sh- I can't stay up, but I just really, what's, I just want to know what's going to happen. Just, oh, this is a short chapter. I'll just, I'll just read one more. 
one more, one more. And, and now it's 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and you are livid. You are livid. You've been up all night, you're exhausted, and you've got to go to work or school in just, in just a little while. And now you start cursing me on Twitter, on Facebook, you're so mad. Now, maybe not you all. You're, you're, you seem like nice, Christian-friendly people, but I, I know your way is to say, Joel, you make me so mad, bless your heart, you know. And I, and you're not from the South. I don't actually know what the, the front range expression is when you really want to zing someone, but you're trying to be a Christian. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but in the South, it's bless your heart. You know, you can really be quite nasty. You know, he's dumb as a post, bless his heart. You know, <laughs> she's ugly as sin, bless her heart. You know, but anyway, I don't know if that's the way you do it here. But anyway, that's what I do. And I weave into these novels the gospel message. Uh, now it, now, it has to be done right, because these books right now, The Kremlin Conspiracy, this morning, has just landed on the New York Times bestseller list. It's number six on the Publishers Weekly list. Now, the reason I say that is, not, is only to say I'm competing with the best novels in the country, right? And so I have to, I have to step up the game. I've got to play in a way that competes with all those best-known thriller writers in, in the country, in the world, and to do that, you've got a thrill, right? I have to earn it every single page. People do not have the discretionary time or money to waste on a novel. They'd far prefer to go to a movie or watch something on YouTube than actually read. So in a world where people aren't reading much and a world where they don't have the extra time or money, I have to really earn it every single page. But as I do it, I've added an extra complicator, right? Because I'm not trying to throw in gratuitous sex and, 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 and profanity. I'm trying to weave the gospel story into one of the lives of one of the characters. Now, that, that's challenging, but that's my way in a world where I don't really have a lot of other ways for me to share the gospel. And, and now there's some five million copies of the books in print. Um, and they're being read by all kinds of interesting people. Uh, uh, Vice President Mike Pence and his wife Karen are fans of the novels, and we, my wife and I are personal friends of theirs. We met them when, they were, when Mike was a congressman in the House of Representatives, and he and his wife were, were excited about these novels, and they invited us to lunch. And that began a friendship. Who knew he was going to emerge to be the second most powerful person on the planet, right? I saw him at a luncheon a few weeks ago at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, and uh, it was a small luncheon of some pro-life leaders, and he didn't know I was going to be there, and he spotted me, and afterwards he comes over and gave me a hug and said, where's the new book? <laughs> I hear it's out. I don't have it. So uh, Mike Pompeo, the, uh, the CIA director, who will be, Lord willing, our new Secretary of State, he's not only a friend, but he's also a fan of these novels. King of, the King of Jordan, several years ago, actually read one of my novels, which happened to be about ISIS trying to assassinate him and overthrow his kingdom. Now that's risky. This man's a Muslim. He's a monarch. He's a direct descendant of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. His forebears ruled Mecca and Medina for 900 years, okay? Now if you're Jewish and you're American and an Israeli and a fa failed political consultant and an evangelical and a novelist, and you write and you make him an actual character in the books. He's a named character in three novels in that series. 
And if you, if you do that, that's risky. If you try to have people kill him, that's risky. But when he reads it, then you brace for impact. But rather than banning me from his kingdom forever, which he could have done, uh, he, he invited my wife and me to come for five days to Jordan to spend time with him, building a friendship, getting to know each other, and also so that we would learn from him and his generals how he's trying to make sure that my books never come true. And uh, that was exciting. Um, I'm going to get to the sermon in a moment and uh, just giving you a little context if you don't know what I'm up to. Um, it just, uh, just one more thing on, on King Abdullah. I really have developed a, a, a real uh, uh, admiration for this man. Uh, he's, I, we don't agree with each other theologically. Uh, and we don't agree with each other on every issue, but he is a moderate Muslim who's fighting ISIS and has a peace treaty with Israel and a close alliance, a strategic alliance with the United States. These are the kind of leaders we want in the Middle East. And now that I especially, especially that I live in the Middle East, uh, live in Jerusalem, uh, I like having neighbors like this. And um, when we got to the palace uh, for the first day, we had lunch with him. Just him, the advisor that had given him the book originally, and my wife and me. And it was amazing. And he said, Joel, I, I was thinking where I wanted to first meet you when you came. And I thought, well, in your book, you destroy this palace in a big terrorist attack. So I wanted you to see it because it's a nice palace. It's a lovely palace. I said, it is. It is. It's very, it's very lovely. And I pray that, that my books never come true. And um, then he said, you know, I notice, of course, that I'm a character in the book. But my advisors, they're all, they all have fictional names but I can see who corresponds to whom on my team. And I have bought copies of your novel and I give them to members of my team. I say, this is you, you don't make it through the terror attack. <laughs> so he's got a sense of humor. And um, it's a very special time. And I've seen him, seen him uh, about five times over the last two years. And look, I don't want to overstate the friendship, but it's, it's amazing. God is opening up all kinds of crazy doors to all kinds of interesting people. And when you write novels, you know, you just want your mother to be able to find it at a bookstore within 100 miles of your house. That's your objective. You can't, I mean, you can hope to be on the bestseller list, but you can't know that it's going to happen. And you can't know or, or hardly even dream that world leaders would be reading your books. But when they are, then it, it puts an extra emphasis on writing them as well as you possibly can and sort of clearing the decks of almost anything else because this is, this is the, the ministry God has given me. Now, my wife and I started a ministry, a nonprofit ministry called the Joshua Fund 12 years ago to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus, to reach everybody in that region with the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jews, Muslims, others, uh, to strengthen the church in the epicenter, to fulfill the Great Commission in our lifetime, to care for the poor and the needy, Holocaust survivors and Syrian and Iraqi refugees with humanitarian relief. This is, this is the ministry we do sort of on the side. And I tell you, I would quit being a novelist tonight, today, right now, from this pulpit, if I could, just to work for the Joshua Fund. I love this ministry. My wife and I founded it. I'm the chairman. I would just do that. But the Lord is not letting me just do that. He's saying, look, I, I'm, I'm helping you recruit, train, deploy a team of people to do it, and that's their giftings. But you, I want you to be a novelist. I want you to make things up and use that because that's the key that's opening doors all over the world to talk about 
Christ. And, and so this is what I do. And, I, and so I'm grateful that I failed at everything else because it helped me, it helped narrow the options to what I'm supposed to be doing. And I pray that wherever you feel like you are in your life, if you think you're, ba- you're not good at this and I'm not good at that and this guy's better at this and I'm, I failed at that, who knows where God wants you to be serving him, but be faithful in a few things and, 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 and use every opportunity to, to talk to people about Jesus in the time that we have left. And maybe God would take you on to, to reach many more people, but let's be faithful where we are Uh, knowing that we have the truth and other people are lost and in great peril without it. Now, in the course of a month-long book tour for a book called The Kremlin Conspiracy, I've been talking a lot about the novel, but even more about the situation that we live in. Vladimir Putin um, just stole, I mean, he just was elected uh, into another uh, another six years. Look, I, I think that's going to be his last election, and that, by that I mean I don't think they're going to have more elections in Russia. I think Putin was probably frustrated when he watched the Chinese a few weeks ago decide they're not going to have, you know, their, their leader will just be a leader for life. I think Putin was like, oh, come on, why didn't I think of that? And I think he's emerging as the most dangerous uh, dictator on the planet. He invades countries. He knocks off journalists and opponents of all kinds. Uh, they disappear or they die. And, um, and, and he's a dangerous man. And I, and I write a fictional account of what could happen if Western leaders, if American leaders don't understand the threat, the evil that he poses. It's not, he, my main character in the Kremlin conspiracy isn't Putin, but let's call him Putin-esque. Okay, he's, he's sort, of, sort of like Putin. So anyway, that novel, I've been talking about that all over the country for a month. But, but through that, I've been having a number of believers come up to me, uh, people who are interested in Bible prophecy, and say, Joel, do you think Vladimir Putin uh, is, is this character from the Bible known as Gog? Okay, what is the future of Russia according to Bible prophecy? And questions in that, in that arena. Uh, you know, the novel doesn't directly touch on prophecy. It deals with geopolitical worst-case scenarios that, that seem to exist right now or could soon. But it's a good question, uh, and one that, uh, this question of where, what happens to Russia according to Bible prophecy, and, and, and where are we headed in terms of the future of Russia, and, uh, and how should the church respond um, to those prophecies and what's happening in the real world? And on that basis, I want to talk to you today um, from the chapter 38 and 39 of the book of Ezekiel. So if you turn there, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, and as you do that, I'll just give you just a bit more of context. My father's side, as I mentioned, is Jewish, right? A name like Joel Rosenberg, that's, that's got to be Jewish. And... Uh, my father, uh, his parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, they escaped out of Russia as Orthodox Jews in around 1906 when Tsar Nicholas II, the leader of Russia, was fomenting a horrific era of uh, anti-Semitic attacks. 60,000 Jewish people were murdered uh, during the late 1800s, early 1900s under the reign of terror of Tsar Nicholas II. 
Uh, now, if you were an Orthodox Jew during that time you, you were, and you weren't being murdered yet, you might be beaten, raped, your house burned, your possessions stolen. So Orthodox Jews in Russia at that time had two options. You know, they could fiddle on the roof or they could try to get out. That whole play and the movie, Fiddle on the Roof, is about being an Orthodox Jew under the czar. You might remember even one of the characters says, may God bless and keep the czar far away from us, right? And it was about how do you live in that time of poverty and, and persecution? How do you raise a family? How do you lead your life? Well, my family saw evil rising and they escaped. And they were very fortunate. Not everybody, in fact, most people couldn't escape. But they did. And, uh, and, and having gotten out of anti-Semitic, fascist, czarist Russia, they did not settle in Poland or Germany or Austria or any of the places in Central and Eastern Europe that in the, just in the next few years would be engulfed by the terrors of World War I and then the Bolshevik Revolution, the rise of the communists, and then World War II and the rise of Adolf Hitler and the, uh, the, the final solution, the, the systematic liquidation, extermination of six million Jewish people, one out of three of every Jews on the planet at the time. My family, by the grace of God, and, and they didn't know Jesus. This was grace. This was unmerited favor. God moved them across Europe and put them on a steamship and sent them to the New World, to America. This, and they set up shop in Brooklyn, which is what you do when you get to America and you're Jewish. And this is where we found political freedom to, to think what we wanted and, and say what we wanted without fear. This is where we found economic freedom to pursue our own dreams uh, with tremendous opportunity. Not always easy, but still with freedom and opportunity. And this is where we found spiritual freedom. This is where my, my parents and then eventually me and my family came to faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Now, my father, when he came to faith as an Orthodox Jew, came to faith in, in Jesus as Messiah in 1973, he thought he was the first Jew since the Apostle Paul who believed this stuff. He never heard of a Jewish person who believed in Jesus. He never met one. And in 1973, we, we believe, based on all the research we've seen, there were fewer than 2,000 Jewish people on planet Earth that believed that Jesus is the Messiah. At that time, fewer than 2,000. Today, we just released a new study, uh, a, a couple of organizations I'm working with uh, at, at the NRB convention, and we found this fascinating uh, insight. There are now 871,000 Jewish followers of Jesus in America alone. Almost 900,000. We are seeing Jewish people responding to the gospel here like never before. And a large part of that is because Gentile Christians are loving them and showing kindness and loving Israel and showing a great love and, a, and support for Israel and the Jewish people. Thank you. I know your congregation that, that this is very close to your heart. Now, I also want you to love Palestinians and Jordanians and Egyptians and Syrians and Iraqis and Lebanese and uh, Egyptians, everybody in the region, but thank you for loving Israel. And it's your witness and people like you all over the United States that are helping Jewish people realize that God loves us and that Jesus is the Messiah sent for us. But dark times are coming. And Ezekiel 38 gives us a prophecy, almost 2,500 years old now, that walks us through a very dark period in the prophetic future. 
Let me begin. I'm going to take it a few verses at a time and unpack it. We're not going to be able to unpack every single verse of these two chapters, but I want to give you an overview so you can process this question. What, what is the future of Russia according to Bible prophecy, and why should that matter to me as a follower of Jesus Christ? Chapter 38 of Ezekiel, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Now, for many, perhaps you, but many Christians come to, you know, maybe they're reading through the, the Bible, as, as Pastor Ed was encouraging you to, to go through it in a year. You get to a passage like this, and you're like, okay, I don't understand what's going on here. Gog, well, you know, what is, what's a Gog? I, I'm a Gog just thinking about it. I mean, it's crazy. I don't understand what that means. Magog, Rosh, Meshach, I mean, okay, let's just skip this. Let's just move on, you know, maybe move back to the Beatitudes. Maybe I'm not doing them all, but at least I understand what Jesus is talking about. That's why people struggle with prophecy sometimes, because these things don't make sense to them. Okay, let's take a moment and break these things down. Now, in my nonfiction book I wrote uh, almost 12 years ago uh, called Epicenter, uh, that, that was my first nonfiction book. And I take this prophecy and I actually break it down over the course of the book to explain it and to draw lots of resources. There's lots of footnotes doing historical detective work to understand what this passage means and why it's important. I can't cover all that, but I'm going to cover a few points now, if you will. Now, Gog. Gog is not a, a name. It's not a personal name. We're not looking for Bob Gog or, you know, Fred Gog or Dimitri Gog. This is, this is a title like Pharaoh or Tsar. It's a title, and this particular person, this leader, comes from the land of Magog. You're like, that is not helping me any. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. But Gog, what can we learn about Gog just by, you know, even if you didn't know what that meant, let's begin to build a profile just from the passage that we have. Now, in verse 2, it says, uh, well, God's against him, right? Son of man, set your face toward Gog. And as you go through, you're going to find, it says, um, and I, God says, I'm against you, O Gog. So we know this is an enemy of God. Okay, so you take your little notebook and you say, enemy of God. Got it. Next, verse 2. It says he comes from the land of Magog. Okay, we don't know what that means, but we say he's clearly a leader over a particular territory. Okay, we'll figure that out later. But he's a leader over a land. Now, it says he's a prince. Uh, so he's either royalty, or he thinks of himself as royalty, or he's somehow a political leader over a land. Okay, fine. Now, as we go through it, we're going to find that he's a military leader. Okay, uh, verse 4, I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws and bring you out, you and all of your army. Okay, all right, so we go, all right, so he's, the, he's a military commander. He has a military force. He has an army. Okay, so that's important. Um, as you continue to go through, you're going to see that he builds a coalition of other countries. Verse 5, Persia, Ethiopia, Put, Gomer, several others. 
So we know he's a diplomatic leader. He's, he's somebody not just leading his own military force against somebody, but he's also a diplomatic leader who's, who's persuading other nations to come and join a coalition that's going to be against the purposes of God. Now, in verse 10, it says, um, Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day, on that prophetic day, a day in the future, that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. So we know this is a leader who is a military leader, he's a political leader, he's a diplomatic leader, and he's evil. He has an evil plan and God is against him. That's a lot of information for you to have just plucked out when you might have otherwise skipped this passage. So in any scriptures that you study over the course of the year, I just want to encourage you when you come to something like this, just slow it down, make a list of words you don't know, but then say, all right, based on the words I do know, what can I learn? Just, just, and you'll begin to get a profile of somebody, even if you're not sure of every detail. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to unpack this. So Gog is a title. It's a pharaoh or a czar. And he comes from the land of Magog. Now, in uh, 2,000 years ago, there was a famous uh, Roman historian named Josephus. Josephus um, is one of the most famous and trusted historians of his day. And he writes about Magog. Now, what's interesting, because Magog, and actually most of these names, are names that come from the Bible earlier in the Bible, actually the book of Genesis. If you were to turn, and I wouldn't encourage it right this moment, but write down in the side of your notes, Genesis chapter 10. Magog is a descendant of Noah. Okay? He's a, direct, he's a descendant of Noah. He's one of Noah's children's children, who spread out from the Middle East, where Noah and his children lived, somewhere in the world. Well, Josephus helps us pick up the thread of history. Because Josephus writes that the people of Magog are the people whom the Greeks called Scythians. Now that's helpful because the Greeks wrote much of our ancient history. Okay? And so we can follow the thread of the word Scythian throughout history to understand what happened to the Scythian people. And what do we learn? We learn that the Scythians were the people that lived in the Middle East, but they migrated northward. They settled north of the Black Sea and north of the Caspian Sea in what we today know as the, Feder the Russian Federation. Okay? Now, they also probably spread out into some of the neighboring countries, the former Soviet republics. So we can't be precise that Russia is the only country that would be considered Magog, but it's certainly the main one. I actually traveled to Moscow a number of years ago with my father who had never been. I had been in college when it was still the Soviet Union. I was smuggling Bibles and sharing the gospel with people in Russia because that was part of my heritage and I wanted to take the light back to a land of darkness. Well, my father had never been, so I took him and we did some research for some books I was writing. And we went to the State Historical Museum, sort of their, the Russian version of the Smithsonian, and it's right on Red Square, right by the Kremlin. And you go in, and what do you find in the ancient artifacts section? Scythian artifacts. Because the Russians see the Scythians as the founders of ancient Rus, which is the forerunner to the country we now today know as Russia. Very, very interesting. So this is where I 
come to the conclusion that Magog is Russia, and so Gog is a dictator over the land of Russia. Now, there's, a one, there's, there's other clues, but I want to give you uh, just one more. In the text, it says that, the, um, that uh, Gog, this leader, will be coming. Uh, look, look at uh, chapter 38, verse 16. No, I'm sorry, 15. It says, you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north. Now, when you have a geography distinction like that, it's always north, south, east, or west of Jerusalem. That's how the Bible is set up, unless it's otherwise specified. It's always in relationship to Israel, the Jewish people, and Jerusalem. So this would be north of Jerusalem. Now, in chapter 39, verse 2, which continues on the details of the prophecy, it says, God says, I will take you, Gog, up from the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Well, now we're beginning to get a sense of where this coalition is headed. They're headed to Israel. They're going to try to conquer and consume Israel. We'll get back to that. But it says that they're coming from the remotest parts of the north and several other places in the two chapters this is mentioned. Now, if you go to a map of the world, I encourage you to do that later this afternoon or, or Google it now, and you'll see a map, you'll see Jerusalem, go due north from Jerusalem, as north as you can go, where are you? You're in Russia. And what's the main city directly due north, as far as you can go? That would be Moscow. Now, some people say, well, is it possible that it's Canada? You know, you keep going, and it's Canada. Well, no, that's, now you're going south, right? Once you cross the North Pole, the, geogra the geographical, uh, you know, distinctions change, and now you're heading south. So it's not. It's not. Uh, so all my Canadian friends, are, you're in the clear. Now, okay, so that's Russia. So you're going to have a dictator, an evil dictator, rising in Russia. He's building a coalition, and he's coming against Israel. Now, who's in the coalition? Well, verse 5, it says, the first country mentioned is Persia. Well, Persia is the most easy country to identify in this challenging list because until 1933, Persia was the official legal name of the country we now know as Iran. So you'd be expecting a Russian-Iranian alliance. Now, in the 2,500 years since this prophecy was written, Russia and Iran have never had an alliance until now. Never, not in all of human history, until now. It began in the late 1990s. It's a, it, it has accelerated since Vladimir Putin took power, and it is in full swing now. Russia and Iran, Russia's selling nuclear technology. It's uh, selling high-tech weaponry to uh, Iran. It's running political interference at the United Nations for Iran. These guys have an alliance that they've never had in all history. And lo and behold, Russia... Russian and Iranian forces right now on the same side are fighting together against the people of Syria just, just north of the mountains of Israel. They are trying to prop up the beleaguered, besieged government of Bashar al-Assad. So that's interesting. Russia, Iran, an alliance. The next country, your Bibles might say Ethiopia, but the Hebrew word is Cush, and Cush is the upper Nile region, uh, uh, and the Nile runs through Egypt, but it's not Egypt. Uh, this is, uh, 
this is from the headwaters, and so this puts us in Sudan. It could include Ethiopia, possibly, but it certainly is in Sudan. And lo and behold, Sudan has an alliance between themselves, Russia, and Iran. In Egypt, interestingly, Egypt is not mentioned in this chapter or the next. They are not a player. You say, now wait a minute, Egypt's been an enemy of Israel and the Jewish people. I mean, that's what the Passover story is all about. That's what the Exodus story is, is all about. Going as far back as, you know, uh, Charlton Heston taking on Yul Brenner in the Ten Commandments movie, the Egyptians have always been against Israel. That's true. Uh, 1948, Egypt led the way to destroy the newborn nation of Israel. 1956, Israel and Egypt fighting. 1967, Egypt and Israel. 1973, Egypt tries to wipe out Israel in a sneak attack. But in 1979, Egypt signed a peace treaty with Israel. And the current leader of Israel is, I'm sorry, of Egypt is President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. He's a moderate Muslim. He has a close alliance, not just a treaty, I would call it an alliance with Israel. I met him last year in Washington, and in the course of our conversations, he invited me to bring a delegation of evangelical Christian leaders to come visit him in Egypt. We were supposed to spend an hour with him. We ended up spending three hours with him. Me, a Jewish follower of Jesus, a U.S. Israeli citizen, in fact, after my initial meeting with El Sisi, I flew home to Israel, had Passover. This was a year ago at the end of that book tour. And uh, my friends were like, you had a meeting with President El Sisi? I said, I know. How crazy is this to be a Jewish man, to meet with the leader of Egypt on the eve of Passover and say, let my people come. <laughs> That's not how the story goes, Right. And yet God opened that door. Amazing. And he's actually asked me to bring another delegation, and we're working on developing that now. Egypt is not, right now, the one window in all of history where Egypt is not a threat to Israel is right now. Now, you go through the others. We don't have time to go through all of them. Put is ancient Libyos. Gomer is modern-day Turkey. Beth Togarma are the Turkic-speaking peoples that spread out across Central Asia, Turkmenistan, and among others. So we, we can't be totally precise on every country, but we're looking for a Russian, Iranian, Turkish, Libyan, Central Asian alliance that will come against Israel in the last days. Now in verse 8, it says, after many days you will be summoned in the latter years. The latter years, this tells us it's an eschatological prophecy. This is something that's going to happen before the return of Jesus, but late in the game. In the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and now they're living securely, all of them. This is fascinating to me. This means that the prophecy can't happen until Israel is reborn as a nation. Well, that hadn't happened for almost, you know, it only happened 70 years ago. In May, we'll, we'll celebrate the 70th anniversary of the modern prophetic rebirth of Israel. So Israel had to be reborn for this prophecy to come true. Jews are streaming back from all over the world, my family included, to live in Israel. And even though we don't have peace, 
Israelis feel more secure than ever before. We have a strong air force, navy, army, leadership. Uh, we have a close alliance with the most powerful country on the planet, the United States. And we have peace treaties with Jordan and Egypt and increasingly good relations with most of the Arab world. That's extraordinary. Now, let me stop for a moment to say, a lot of these trend lines seem very consistent. What's happening in our world today seem very consistent with these prophecies. And therefore, one might say, do you think this prophecy is going to come true in, in our lifetime, Joel? And my answer is, I don't know. If they could, right? Now, obviously they could. I mean, anything's possible. But my point is, these haven't happened in 2,500 years. But, they, but, but all the preparations seem to be being made right now. Now, God in his sovereignty could kick the prophetic can up 50 years, 100 years, 500 years. He could do that. But it's also possible that we are getting very close to the fulfillment of this set of prophecies. Now, just for time's sake, I'm going to take you through what happens when this alliance is formed and comes to encircle Israel and attack Israel. Okay? So turn uh, to verse 18. Oh, I, let me also say verse 16, God is saying to Gog, you will come against my people Israel, in case there's any doubt who the focus of the attack is. He'll come like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days. That's another time clue that tells us this is in the eschatological future, meaning as we get closer to the return of Christ, this has to happen before Jesus comes back. Not in terms of the rapture, but in terms of his actual physical second coming. And he says, I will bring you against my land. So the question is why? Now, verse 18. It will come about on that day when Gog comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. In my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains will be thrown down, the steep pathways will collapse, every wall will fall to the ground. Verse 21, God says, I will call for a sword against him, Gog, on my mountains, on all of my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will turn against each other, against his brother. With pestilence, with disease, and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Now, this, again, this is very sobering. That We're talking about the judgment of God on Russia, on Iran, on Turkey, on Libya, 
on Sudan, on these other countries that will come against Israel in the last days of history. We see no evidence that Israel is actually going to defend herself with her own army. We see no evidence that NATO is going to come to the defense. No evidence that the United Nations is going to come to the defense of Israel. No evidence that the United States is going to come to the defense of Israel. No country comes to Israel's defense. Israel is completely alone as this attack, as they're encircled and the attack begins. Only one person comes to our defense, and that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is going to reach into human history and show his might, his glory, his splendor in a way that he never has done it since the Passover, since the Exodus, since he reigned judgments, 10 different plagues on the people and leaders of Egypt, when he parted the Red Sea and he brought my people out of slavery and into freedom and eventually into the promised land. But at that, at that time, how many people actually saw it happen? Just the people that were living there. But turn to chapter 39, verse 21, as we, as we get close to ending our time together uh, today. God says in this very interesting verse, and I encourage you to read every verse in both chapters. Take some time on your own, as a couple, as a family to, today. Maybe after church, maybe this evening. Spend some time studying these passages. I think you're going to find they're very relevant, and, uh, and they also speak to us. But in verse 21, chapter 39, very specifically, God says, I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. The whole world will see God execute his judgment on the enemies of Israel, this particular coalition? How is that possible? Well, it wasn't possible for 2,500 years until now. Because of the miracle of global satellite, television technology, and the internet, now we would all be able to see a war unfold in the Middle East in real time. And that's what God says is going to happen. Everybody in the world is going to see the judgment that he will lay on the enemies of Israel. This is going to be the most dramatic moment in all of human history, in God's intervention in history, except for the resurrection. That was the most dramatic moment, the most powerful moment, when you raise your own son, crucified, buried, you raise him from the dead, but how many people saw it? About 500 which was powerful because they, including the apostles, took that message all over the world. That's how we know it, because they communicated to us throughout history. But we believe having not seen, but people living at this time will see the power of God intervene in history like no other time in human history. I don't believe there'll be an atheist or an agnostic on the planet after this. That doesn't mean everyone's going to come to faith in Jesus, but you will not be able to say that there's no God in heaven after this, because that's what he says. Everyone will know. And the house of Israel, my house, the Jewish house, will know there's a God. Most of our people don't believe that there's a God. Or if he's out there, they think he's impotent and he can't do anything because where is he? You know, our national anthem in Israel is Hatikva, the hope. But most of my people have no hope. I would say that 
the real national anthem for my people ought to be the old country western song, looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> like we've already, my people have rejected the God of the Bible, mostly. And they've also rejected Jesus, mostly. You know, they'll believe in anybody but Jesus. So they're looking for love in all the wrong places. They have a spiritual hole in their souls, but they've already decided it's not ultra-Orthodox Judaism and it's not Jesus. So they become Jubus, Jewish Buddhists. They become Jewish Hindus. They become, they get into new age. They get into drugs. They, anything other than Jesus. This is sad. And this is why we need to be engaged in prayer for Russia for Putin, God says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We need to be praying for the leaders of Russia, that their hearts would change. We need to be praying for the church, the persecuted church in Russia, that they would be light as darkness falls on that country. We need to pray for all of the nations that I've just mentioned, that they would hear the gospel and make, have the chance to make a decision for Christ or against him before these judgments fall. We need to pray for Israel, that they would hear the gospel and their hearts would be prepared for this moment. Let me close with the last couple of verses of Ezekiel 39, starting in verse 28. Then they, the, the, the nation of Israel, will know that I am the Lord their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gather them again into their own land. That's what he's been doing for the last hundred years. Israel's been reborn as a fulfillment of end times Bible prophecy. Every time your pastor goes to Israel, and some of you get to go with them, they're going to a land that didn't exist. Only the Bible said it would be reborn as an actual sovereign nation state, and the Jews would come back and resettle that land. Only the Bible promised that would happen. And, it, and God said it would happen in the last days of history, before the return of Christ, and we're seeing it come to pass. Now he says, uh, God says, I will leave none of them, none of the Jewish people there in the exile nations any longer. All Jews are heading to Israel. That's exciting for my family, but I also, now that we're there, we're like, oh, the traffic is bad. It's going to get worse. <laughs> Housing prices are high. It's going to get higher. Yikes. Key verse as we, as we close. It's verse 29. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. God says to a nation that he will have just rescued, I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. In the aftermath of his judgment of these nations, God is going to pour out his spirit on Israel and the people of the Middle East. I believe we're going to see the greatest harvest of Jewish and Muslim people and others in the history of mankind. And I would love this to happen in my lifetime. I don't wish ill on the people of Russia or Iran. I want them to come to Christ first. But I want God to pour out his spirit on the house of Israel. My house, my people's house. Yes, more Jews are coming to faith in Jesus than ever before, but in a world of 15 or 16 million Jewish people, 871,000, that's not enough for me. I'm glad to be among them, but much more needs to be done. And God, and this is what God promises. Now, I can't tell you if it'll happen in my lifetime or yours, much less whether it will happen soon. But I want to leave you with a, a few last uh, takeaways. One, please, again, pray. Pray for Putin, that his heart would be changed. 
pray for the people of Russia, that their hearts would be open to the gospel, and that the church would be bold to proclaiming the gospel, even though it's illegal to do that now. Pray for all these nations that the Lord would draw their leaders and their people to himself, that the church would be bold in reaching Iran and Turkey and Libya and these other countries with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray that God would bring the gospel to Israel, to Lebanon, to Syria, to Jordan, to Egypt, to Iraq, to Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. Pray that the church would be strong. This is what, in, in one part of my life, I write novels to kind of stir people up about these things. And the other part of my life is the Joshua Fund, raising funds to invest in the work of the gospel in that region. We need to be engaged in missions work to reach the whole world, and not just easy countries, but difficult countries, countries that are going to face judgment. And I leave you with this thought. How are you doing? in your walk with Christ. We're late, late in the game. You're like, we're late in this service. Could you just wrap it up? I will, yes. That landing gear is down. We're, we're on the pro chair and we're almost touching down. But, but we're late in the game. America is going to be judged too. It, you won't find it in the Bible, but I ask you this question. Can any nation kill 60 million babies and, and escape the judgment of God? 60 million. We've just crossed 60 million in your lifetime and mine. Americans systematically murdering 60 million souls. My friends, this is 10 times more people that have been murdered, that have been executed, liquidated. 10 times more than the number of Jews that the Nazis murdered during the Holocaust. I guarantee you that their blood, they are crying out for justice and they're going to get it. It's amazing they haven't gotten it already. Judgment is coming to America, not just to Russia, Iran, and the countries of the Middle East. And that, that means we're living on borrowed time. It's amazing that these judgments haven't fallen on America already. So are we walking with Jesus? If you've never given your life to Jesus, let today be the day. If you are walking with Jesus, and, and, but you're thinking, I haven't really shared the gospel with anyone. I haven't invited anyone to church for Easter. I, I'm not really doing that. Can I encourage you? Ask God to forgive you and give you the power to be a witness here on the front range and to be engaged in global missions. And if you're not walking with Jesus, but you've actually, you are born again, may I encourage you this be the day that you come forward and just ask the Lord to get you on the right path. It is too late in the game to be drifting, wandering away from Jesus. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, Thank you for loving us. Thank you that your word is clear, but it's not always easy. This is sobering, Lord. And I just pray that you'd have mercy on us for people who love you but need to, need to be motivated to be a better witness, a stronger, more faithful witness. Help them do that. Those who are wandering from you, who, who know you but aren't really walking with you, Lord, help them to repent today and ask you to help them get on the right path. Help them get the encouragement, the discipleship, the counseling they may need to get on the right path with you so late in the game. And Lord, for those who've never made that decision, I pray today would be the day. They'd come forward after the service and meet with a pastor or a, uh, one, of the, one of the counselors and just ask, how do I make that decision to get right with God, to to be adopted into God's kingdom through, the, through faith in Jesus. 
And Lord, we love you. May we be a witness. Draw Vladimir Putin and all these other leaders into your kingdom. Strengthen your church, Lord. And show us how to be a witness. Through a novel, through a ministry, through the ways that you called this church to, to serve you. May we hear from your lips one day what we all long to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Lord, we pray in the name of our great king who is coming soon. The name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.